Welcome to the CIO Evolution. In this podcast, we'll explore the Chief Information Officer's role in executing a new ongoing leadership imperative, digital transformation that promotes agility and resilience. How do CIOs upgrade legacy networks? What are the financial challenges CIOs face? And what are the security measures that are required in the new work-from-anywhere mobile and cloud-based world? Welcome to the CIO Evolution. I'm your host, Christopher Jablonski, Director of CXO Revolutionaries and Community. Today, I am happy and excited to welcome to the show Sam Curry, Vice President and CISO Americas at Zscaler. He is a 30-year veteran of the cybersecurity industry. He is also adjunct professor. Yep. Yep. And been at the company Zscaler for about a half a year. Does that sound about right? Sounds about right to me. And thanks for having me on, by the way. Uh, our pleasure. So, Sam, you've been producing quite a bit of wonderful thought leadership for our platform. And one of the recent articles you wrote about negative trust uh, really um, struck a chord. Could you uh, talk about negative trust and what it is and what was the point uh, when you put pen to paper? I think we have to talk briefly about zero trust first, because that may be new to some listeners or some may be skeptics of it. So zero trust is a concept that effectively says whenever you, if you think of what's the job of a CIO or an IT department, it's it's to enable connections and transactions, right? The business wants the right people doing the right things at the right time. The way it typically does that is it just connects things, right? You have a network, you want you want to make sure that everything can touch everything else. Um, a zero trust framework says, wait, flip that around. Let's, let's make sure if everything can connect, let's not inherently trust the network. Um, we want the user experience to be great, but let's only allow the connections when they're asked for as they're needed and required by the business. And that's a very different mindset to have. It's a sort of, I'm going to try and not fall into security jargon here. It's an almost just in time provisioning or, or enabling of a connection. In security speak, we would say it's an authorization, but every request to do something is seamless and transparent to the end user. And it's requested individually and it's enabled and enforced individually. And the zero trust is we don't trust the network. We don't trust um, anything by default. So you could connect from an internet cafe or a toxic network or environment somewhere with as much trust as a user and the company can know about that environment and how you're connecting and who you are and where you're trying to go and what you're trying to do and policy takes care of the rest. So that's zero trust. And you could think of it as less trust means less risk. Great, right? And there's all sorts of other benefits if you do this correctly, especially around cost savings and simplicity and troubleshooting. That's for another day. So what's negative trust, right? It seems like, okay, so that blows my mind. And the way to understand that is to understand there is an opponent. And what's the opponent trying to do? They're trying to take over an identity. They're trying to take over systems. They're trying to get to the data. They're in effect trying to take those transactions the CIO has, he or she has built up at great expense to an organization and use them for their gain. Um, That's what the hackers are doing. That's what nation states are doing and cyber criminals, and they're doing it at scale. And so negative trust says, if they get a purchase somewhere, if they take over your identity or your machine, I don't want them trusting anything they think they've won. So 
it, every door they go to open, every file to touch, every path they think they can take because, hey, they're inside, they own it, they're in control, I want them to have second thoughts. And I want everyone potentially to be a tripwire. So the negative trust is not for the users, as zero trust is, or for the, for the, you know, for the IT administrators, it's for the adversary. And, and in an ideal world, they'd have a hundred, maybe a thousand choices, but only one gets them closer to their goal. And every step they take is a chance to make a mistake. That's negative trust. It's deception. Right. So those files, those databases and apps, they're decoys, they're honeypots, et cetera. Exactly. It's a, so if you think of a user getting on a machine, connecting to the internet, um, then their transaction goes through a switchboard. For us, it's the zero trust exchange. And eventually it connects to an application and into data. Every step in that, in, that, in, that, in that chain should lead to doubt for the attacker. Um, it should lead to mistakes that can alert the security team. And it should lead to potentially off-ramps or tangents that could waste their time and tie them up because it's a race, right? The, the attacker is trying to race the clock to get to the data and do a transaction or steal it. And what the defenders are trying to do is find them before they do that and tie them up. So if you can get them to waste their time and slow them down, trip them up. In fact, um, I use this analogy. If it's a, if you think about it as a foot race, it is fine to cheat. In fact, that's a virtue, All right? There's no need to play this game fairly. It is war. So why aren't we using deception and decoys and fake identities and fake paths and fake files and fake apps and throwing that in their way? In the meantime, by the way, don't mess up the real users. That's, that's the beauty if you do this right. The real users get to their goals, do their thing. But as soon as the, the identities get abused, they go off into Never Never Land. Right. So that seems like the thesis of your piece, and I failed to mention the title. It's the, the Deception Game, Negative Trust in Cybersecurity, and it will be linked to on the uh, podcast page once we publish it. So it sounds like to win an asymmetric battle where mm -hmm. there's no limit to what adversaries can literally do, like they're experimenting now with AI, they have creativity that would blow away the minds of some defenders, right? So you got to match it. Um, you mentioned war. And hmm. I noticed you alluded to a couple examples of yeah. war, oh, two yeah. tactic, tactics of deception. Can you walk the listeners through some of these? And yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Um, in the context of that, just add the ingredients, you think, because they're wonderful stories, right? I think I've seen some documentaries about, was it like, tanks that are just filled with air so from yeah, inflatable tanks yes yeah, yeah. you see these people holding up a tank you think either that guy's a superman or that tank's not what i think it is right, right? Uh, just like some brilliant deception tactics used back then so like the ingredients that these military strategists use you know maybe you could impart a little bit on like what CISOs can benefit from just the philosophy around that yeah, and, and, and some of this was the inspiration for the notion of negative trust to, to begin with. And, and deception has been done for many years in different forms, but I'm going to say I think AI may in fact enable a golden age for it. And I'll explain why after, but let's, let's focus in on your question. Um, I referenced three military operations from World War II. The first was Operation Mincemeat. Um, for those who don't know, Mincemeat is a British uh, a delicacy. It, it, it goes in little pies. It's a mixture of currants and raisins and sugar and apples and candied, you know, fruits and things like that. 
Uh, it sounds horrible, but it's not. Uh, it's not minced meat. Sounds like it's meat. It isn't. It, it it's typically British. It doesn't quite mean what you think it does. Um, <clears throat> but Operation Mincemeat, there was a uh, book written about it after World War II called um, The Man Who Never Was, 1953. There was also a movie kind of about it in 1956, which was quite popular. And recently there was a movie with uh, Matt McFadden, I think, Kelly McDonald, um, Colin Firth was in it, who's, I think, got his own star on Hollywood Boulevard. It was about how to convince the Axis powers that the invasion of Southern Europe wasn't going to happen in Sicily. It was going to happen in Greece. Um, and it was successful. In effect, a lot of, especially German power in Southern Italy and the cream of the sort of Italian forces was moved to Greece um, and, and towards Asia Minor rather than to face the US invasion and allied invasion um, in Sicily and moving up Italy from the South. But to get there, uh, the story's incredible, by the way. They, they, they had a, a poor gentleman, his name was, I'm going to butcher it, but Glendower Michael Welshman. And they had to find a way with poor refrigeration to keep his body, you know, fresh. Uh, they, also had, um, they also had a gentleman who was from, I think, MI6. And they created a fake identity and fake papers for this Marine captain who had an acting promotion to major. And then they dropped him in the sea off the coast of Spain. And why Spain? It was a neutral country. And they wanted the Spanish to find the body with some plans about this fictitious army invading Greece and give it to the Nazis. Well, the problem was the Spanish wanted to give it to the Brits. And so they were trying to convince the Spaniards, don't give it back to us, give it to those guys. There was a bit of a silliness happening. And the movie movie has great fun with it, but it, it, it saved a lot of lives and had a major effect on the war. Now, the other two operations had to do with D-Day. And the, the larger one was called Operation Fortitude. Um, and the idea was to convince <clears throat> the Germans uh, and their allies, because there were, there were other forces involved, that the attack on D-Day would come at uh, Pas-de-Calais rather than at Normandy. And that was a, 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 really, big, a really big deal. Um, there was a British colonel named um, David uh, Strangeways, and he thought it was unconvincing. So while Operation Fortitude happened on many fronts, there was a southern component, there was a northern component, you know, for the Nordics and for Southern Europe, they were trying to convince the Germans that a much larger than actual force was going to land at Padre several days after the smaller Normandy invasion. And what, what, um, what Strangeways didn't like about this was it was messing with their heads rather than getting to behave differently. And so he came up with something called Operation Quicksilver. And, and he created a fictitious American first army. And the idea behind that was, it wasn't saying there's a bigger army. It was very believable and it would cause the Germans to move forces. And that's the key in deception. And, I, and we'll get to what it means for cyber and I'll be, I'll be brief about it because I think people can sort of start to imagine it, right? Yeah. Um, the idea was if this huge 50 division force in the, in the original conception was going to come across what do you do about that well it's, you're messing with their heads and it's not really that believable but if instead real units might be positioned in this fictitious fictitious american first army which didn't exist um then you would actually try to rebalance to to counter the strength uh and that's where your inflatable tanks came and that's where uh all sort of, and they had fake radio chatter and fake movements and logistics and they had fake landing ships and things like that 
Uh, and that actually probably weakened Normandy significantly for June 6, you know, 1944. Um, that you can't, you, you almost can't understate how significant operations like these were for the war effort. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about what it means for IT and for cyber. In an adversarial conflict like this, you, you want the opponent to be making mistakes, putting their resources in the wrong place, betting on the wrong things to buy you time, to buy you insight and intel. And so you can bring your force to bear where you want and where they are, where they are not prepared. Um, so I hope I didn't talk too long on that, but that, yeah. hopefully that answers the question for you. Yeah, it, it definitely sets the stage. Uh, there's one point to make uh, in your description of this deception. I was thinking about the adversary and mm. they themselves could very much use the same kinds of tactics, right? I'm sure there are oh, yeah. some examples, but one that comes to mind is a book I read, and this is on a different kind of scale, but The Escape Artist, The Man Who Broke Out of Auschwitz to Warn the World by Jonathan Friedman. Oh, yeah. It was a bestseller. I read it last year. And, you know, that grand scale deception that, you know, the Nazis were able to pull off to trick millions of people to, you know, they were trying to say it wasn't happening. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're deported to concentration camps thinking that they're headed toward a, a new life. So, you know, there, there's like willful ignorance of some of their atrocities. I mean, I think that's some of the point made in the book. But what I'm saying is like, are there any parallels you could draw to mm. cybersecurity where the adversary themselves may be thinking, Along the same lines of oh yeah, well one of the so one of the ways that I used to know I was under attack um, in a very specific phase between about 2012 and 2017 I'll say 2018 I knew I was under attack because noise would build the DDoS attack would come in uh, the waves of traffic the false positives would spike in other words the artillery barrage would open up and that was to hide the sneaking coming underneath. But the thing most like your, you know, escape um, uh, analogy is it, it's inherently an anonymous medium. In other words, you don't know who's who. And so we get the false flag effect. Um, we get almost like gaslighting going on. Yeah. Um, and, and you get, and you also get a, a two other planes. Um, there's a sort of nihilism and, uh, movement and misinformation and disinformation that Russia was carrying out against m many Western nations, including the United States in 2016 and 2020 around elections. But you also get, uh, so you get the misinformation, disinformation plane, and then you get the diplomatic plane in the great game of nations as they go. We saw this with Obama when he was negotiating supposedly a treaty over cyber with China. Um, it's the posturing what's real, what's claimable, what's, what is plausibly deniable. And so it is a move counter move game. And, and, and for, to some extent, cyber has become an extension of both the battlefield. Uh, it's also become another component of, diplom of diplomacy. So there's an acronym we use called DIME, which stands for diplomacy, information warfare, military, and economics. And the information warfare dimension has gotten much, much more sophisticated. So deception plays on both sides. Um, as does AI, as you alluded to earlier. But the thing I'd emphasize for CIOs is almost everything in IT, the opponent, the, the, the challenge is complex and chaotic, but it isn't intelligently adaptive for most of IT. It's failed parts, it's bad processes, it's waste, it's being predictable, it's building systems that can 
create a, that can support a business, right, at scale. But in cyber, measures you take are going to be outthought by an opponent who will change their behavior tomorrow. You know, right. um, Noah Harari called this in his book, Sapiens, he called it second order chaos rather than first order chaos. First order chaos is horrible things like hurricanes, COVID-19, but second order chaos is the thinking opponent. And, and so far that has been human, but now it's moving into this notion of assisted humans by AI. Um, and that's a, different, that's a different age. And so deception is a part of the toolkit. In you, I love the word you used, asymmetric. It is exactly right. Their game is different from ours uh, and they're played against one another. It's, it's yeah. opposing and asymmetric. You mentioned earlier the, the tactics could be more organized, more uh, fluid in the systems that cybersecurity professionals are already using. And when you, you bring up the MITRE attack in the article, mm as a way to illustrate the different points at where deception can help uh, identify the adversarial behavior on their journey to whatever your objectives they have or crown jewels they're attempting to access. Can you explain like at a high level how those traps can work at each of those stages and then how far down you need to go to reveal the true nature or intentions uh, of an attacker? Yeah, absolutely. It's worth I me mean, just saying what the MITRE attack framework is, because I know many cyber, all the cyber folks will know, but maybe not everyone listening will. It is a way of describing the stages of an attack, the progression of an attack by by an uh, by an adversary. What do they do? First, they they do a, a reconnaissance. Um, they'll do they'll they'll choose their tools. We used to call this the kill chain, by the way, but this is a this is a more developed version of that. Um, then they'll have initial incursion. They'll try to escalate privilege, get higher authority in the environment. They'll move laterally. Think of them as expanding their beachhead, going deeper. Uh, they'll try to cover their tracks. Eventually, they'll find something and they'll try to exfiltrate it and maintain persistence in an environment. So think of the MITRE attack framework is, is quite literally 12 steps. And if you think of it as a grid, every column is a, is one of those 12 steps. And under it, it is listed as boxes. Each one of those boxes is a technique they could use. And so my, my thesis here was every one of these tactics could potentially benefit from decoys and deceptive techniques where you could add negative trust for the opponent. You could make them hesitate. You could waste their time. You could spin them off somewhere because they're going to be bringing, of course, deceptive techniques to try to waste our time in defense and to send us off, off on false signals and false paths. Um, in fact, MITRE has another tool called Engage, uh, and they have a based uh, on something called MITRE Shield. And Engage is what are the tools and techniques that you can use at every step? And so, for instance, there's a there's a deceptive technique called the lure, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It's bait, right? So, if they engage the bait, it sends a signal to the security team. Now, most of the time, what the security team is trying to do is tease the signal from the noise. It's hard. You've got mountains of who cares about false logins because somebody got their password wrong, for instance, right? In there is a signal somewhere that was the hacker doing something. But this signal, there's no real user who, who would have used this credential sitting on a disk somewhere because there's no real user for that credential. But the hacker found it and the hacker tried it. That is a not just a true positive, it's a super true positive. It's the, it is the equivalent on a submarine of an active ping. And, and that is incredibly valuable. So 
part of my premise when I wrote this article was um, that we can look at this. And what I love about the MITRE attack framework is it is a systematic way of understanding the behaviors of the attacker. And we can say everywhere in here has an application that can benefit from this principle of negative trust. See, that's quite fascinating because when you aggregate all these behaviors, follow their, their tracks, you could then start to really put a picture together of like your attacker profile, right? And what- Oh really yeah. Well, actually MITRE, MITRE offers, they, it's not, so they developed the attack framework. That's great. It changes because it's actually you know, scientifically advanced based on observation and data. But they also track individual attackers. So they have a library of, so what are the hopscotch squares through this grid that this attacker uses so you can test yourself against it? And that's that's real world. It's not theoretical. That's real world data of what real bad people do. And so you can test your defenses and say, how would I stop this? How would I stop that? And um, that's, that's to me, that's really cool. Uh, it also means that um, <clears throat> you can get systematic in defense with, yes, how do you find the signal? Yes, how do you find a control to block it? Now, how do you find a way to mess them up? How do you trip them in their race? Right. So then you mentioned uh, earlier some of the other wider, very popular solutions, whether it's zero trust architecture and security service edge. How do you bake this in uh, those platform solutions? Yeah, so I can talk about um, Zscaler, for instance, but uh, a lot will depend on the implementation and, and how people approach zero trust. Um, in the case of Zscaler, there's the zero trust exchange. And so it starts with the user. Um, if, the, if the endpoint is compromised or the user's identity is compromised, you can plant lures, you can plant false identities. Um, and then you, you can sequentially go through it and say, all right, so in the exchange or in the in the cloud, in, in the, so you mentioned SSE, right? You said uh, secure service edge. When you make that initial connection, you're doing as much calculation as you can near the point of entry into the zero trust exchange, right? Which is like a switchboard. And so at that point, you're saying, what's the context around you? You can take, do a risk score and say, is this like you? Is it like others like you? Where are you trying to go? And what's amazing is how much that can stand out when you have a large enough pool of data to compare it against. Put another way, given a large enough sample size, and, and Zscaler, for instance, we've got 19... 19 petabytes of data going through the, the zero trust exchange uh, on a daily basis, which is which is just staggering over 300 billion transactions. These things do tend to stand out from the background. So you can start to say, well, if the risk score starts to deviate by a certain amount, we can tempt them. We can we can put other apps in the way. We can we can also make decisions that are more than just binary, rather than just do you access or don't it? Do we put you in a give you a form of access that limits options for getting data out, for instance? Um, do we send a signal that says, hey, this one's suspicious? Uh, and that's all policy-driven. So inside the system, you can do that. But then in the fulfillment, in the connection, if, assuming you don't block it outright, which you might have the courage to do, or the let's say you might have the conviction to do, um, you can also now do many more interesting things, um, like browser isolation, for instance. Um, you can inject... I've talked about deception. You can put more active deception in place. What's going to happen if, if you, let's say you've got a user and they're a smart user and they're a technical user and they're messing around. Worst case, you've got somebody who was just playing around with something they found on their disk and it leads to a help desk call. That's it. 
That's the worst possible case. 99.9% of your users will never find those lures, but the attackers will find them almost every time. And then you need to make that decision of whether or not you guide them through an experience of what would be reasonable if they were an actual user accessing mm -hmm. things they could, whether it's conditional access, browser isolation, or stop them in their tracks and end mm -hmm. it there, right? So, and you can also get them on, on the attempted exfils. But, so I think of it in my head as source, in transit, and destination generally, rather than the full MITRE attack framework. Those are each opportunities for slightly different kinds of deception to be applied, as well as controls, as well as, as options and rendering on authorization of what you're going to do. Yeah. So what's the difference between a, an organization that is a fully mature zero trust architecture, been doing it for many years, excellent application segmentation practices, and then one that isn't, maybe just started their journey on zero trust when it comes to using deception? Zero trust is a, is, a, is a principle as well as an actual thing you do, right? So getting progressively less trust is beneficial, right? But if you have, quote, a zero trust architecture, now you have a fundamentally different way that things connect. You don't have a flat network. You mentioned application segment, which is spot on. Effectively, it's like an explosion in space. It doesn't last long. It just goes pop. Right, I, I've never done it myself, but hey, I'm a science fiction buff, so I, I presume it just goes pop, right? Um, in other words, the blast doesn't go very far. There aren't machines to explore. There isn't more data to find. You can't escalate your privilege. So what does a mature zero trust solution do? Well, it says, I'm hard to find in the first place, but if you find me, there's not much to explore, if anything, and then there's nowhere to go to get more. In other words, the explosion is contained to that little pop on that system, and it doesn't go much further, if at all, beyond that. Unless you choose to stick them in a lure to learn more about them, put them in a fake application, that's a different story. But in a, so you, the first is, if you begin to apply least trust principles, great. But if you have zero trust architecture, all with capitals, now we're talking about an environment that's fundamentally different from a flat network. It's not a routable network. You're not, it's not like a VPN connection where you just get to the network and you can go anywhere. It doesn't work that way anymore. Right. So then you add the two together, deception with ZTA, and it sounds like you're on the path to Oh yeah, actually I see your I see your point earlier, by the way, that 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 deception is a valuable tool even if you're not on a zero trust path. I'm sorry for interrupting you, but yes, no, it, is, no, no, it is always a good idea. So I guess what I'm trying to get at is the premise of your piece about negative trust. We, we see the stats all the time. Uh, for example, move it transfer cyber attack. Mm. It's every day I'm seeing more and more victims, right? Big companies. Yeah. There's been a 360% increase in cyber attacks on encrypted internet traffic, right? So like numbers are getting bigger there yet the defenses uh, to meet them, you know, up until this point doesn't don't seem to be keeping up. And it sounds like this combination of negative trust, zero trust architecture is the solution to meet the ever growing advanced threats. Because what else are you going to? Well, have? yeah, you're, I think you're right. Um, I, I've been you mentioned in my intro. I've been in cyber for thirty years. 
it wasn't called that when I started, by the way, it was called information security or, or maybe even uh, crypto cryptography. Uh, but the truth is that the attackers are getting better at a faster rate at their game than defenders are, generally speaking, because that's all they're doing. They're innovating and innovating to attack, while a lot of our time is spent doing things like managing systems and doing you know, people's personal reviews, and there isn't that much capital deployed in the typical organization to build new tools. That's done by a vendor class, right, that sells to us, for instance. Um, so think of their proficiency on the dark side is getting better at a faster rate than on the light side. And that, that has to change with some discontinuities. Most of a CISO's budget is, in fact, spent on things they've been buying for decades. Firewalls, for instance, antivirus, classic antivirus, I mean. Those things have been around for 20, 30 years. They're, they're not innovative compared to the thing that the attacker built last month. Right. So what we've got to do is we've got to change the attack topography. That's what Zero Trust can do. We've got to introduce obstacles to the races, races that they run and they've gotten very good at. That's what negative trust can do. Right. Um, and we got to be thinking that way, because if, you know, this certainly the community of defenders is bigger and potentially if it's marshaled correctly, more innovative than the attackers. But it's that if that's huge. So we've, we've got to think of some ways to do this. Now, by the way, cyber doesn't exist for cyber sake. It exists as a service to the business. It is about delivering services to customers. So we have to find a way to do all this while continuing to improve quality of service. Can't deny that. So with that constraint, it's things like negative trust and zero trust that are going to make a tangible difference. Um, now, it, I mentioned earlier, by the way, doing deception it might get better with AI, and it's actually been hard to do. The reason for that is, is um, it's hard to create fake names for things that, that a bad guy is going to fall for. But it's really easy for things like large language models to help you do that. So how do you create fake employees with fake traffic, with fake file names and fake systems and fake passwords that are believable to be part of the culture both ethnic culture and corporate culture of the target. And, you know, it, I honestly think AI is going to give us the means to make it seem like a 700 person company is a 70,000 person company in the crosshairs. And the 700 people, if you can find them, are buried in all the other 69,000, I guess, 300 people. Yeah. That's such a refreshing take on the situation given all the talk about deep fakes and social engineering like this is mm. the exact antidote via ai and you end your piece talking about ai assisted defenses so this, this is why this is so important by the way i am not in this game to lose nor are my colleagues right nor is zscaler nor is nor is anybody even among my competitors by the way unless we're just sitting here and going to work every day or plugging the numbers in which case find another job Right, because we actually have opponents. There's very few places we have opponents in life. And this is one where we have bad people, bad guys, bad gals, whatever. Um, it's up to us to measure up to that. So we better start innovating. Um, right. and, and this is one of those opportunities. And frankly, it's exciting for that reason. And this is what you mean by cheating to win because your adversary started out on square one with cheating. Right. right? If you're not cheating, you're not trying hard enough, right? So then let's bring all this to a, a close with where you see threat intelligence, AI, and deception technology evolve in relation to, to one another. Yeah, um, 
I think I once heard the internet described as both simultaneously the most overhyped and the most underhyped technology of all time. Um, it's very hard to tell where things will go when they're evolving at such a fast rate. But um, I actually recently did a mind map of all the areas in, in cybersecurity, let alone business, because I've looked at some of those as well outside of cyber, that are potentially affected and transformed both on offense and defense, and it's a big mind map. Um, but what matters is what people actually do. What matters is the technologies that they develop. And um, so I would be watching out for better phishing attacks, for instance. Uh, most of our training says, for instance, look for the typos and the bad logos and look for the you know broken English. Well, you know what? AIs get that right. So don't count on that now. Um, but I think we're entering into a phase of what I'm calling assisted offense and assisted defense. Um, Gary Kasparov, who plays chess, uh, uh, was a grandmaster, was beaten by Deep Blue a long time ago. And he said it, it crushed him. And then he came back a little while later and um, uh, he said he beat it. And then he would win more than he lost. And then later he would lose more than he won. And eventually chess went into a phase for about 10 years where assisted human beings dominated chess. Eventually, by the way, AI they, do, they get the best at chess. Now, cyber is a much more, many more variables involved in cyber than in chess, which is an eight by eight grid. Some chess people out there are probably very mad at me for saying that, but we are going into a phase now of assisted human beings. And we're going to see it, that's going to free us up to innovate. It's going to free us up to move at a faster pace. Um, but the key is that we got to not just keep the lights on, we got to keep business growing. So I don't necessarily know what the individual things that will be created are, but I know the areas development's going to happen in. And I, for one, intend to really push on the defensive side. And I also intend to make sure that our labs are doing, you said, threat intelligence too, that we ourselves are simulating what the bad guys do so that we can be prepared for it in defense and get a few steps ahead. Brilliant. 100% agree. And I'm sure all the CXOs listening would be fully behind that vision. We've been listening to Sam Curry, Vice President and CISO Americas at Zscaler. You can hear him on other podcasts. In fact, he's been on the CISO's Gambit, hosted by Sean Cordero. And he has his own podcast called... Do, yeah. On, on the Hook, yeah. On just... the Hook. It's sort of like fishing on the hook. And by the way, the first cyber one ever was called Off the Hook. So... It's a play on that. My partner, Jacob Berry, and I um, decided to host it, to do this. And uh, we have a lot of fun with this. It was on the hook. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Sam, thanks for being on the show. Any final words for our listeners? No, I just want to say thanks for having me on. And, and I, think, um, I think the premise of deception is and, and negative trust is we have to get the bad guys to actually act differently, not just think differently. We need them to be scared of what they're doing, but we need, we need to get them playing on our turf instead of letting them take it over. So thanks for having me on. Thank you. Take care. Thanks for listening to the CIO Evolution. Check back with your podcast provider regularly for more episodes. You can find more episodes along with other podcasts on the CXO Revolutionaries website at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Statements by Zscaler podcasters and guests are informational only and should never be construed as legal advice. You should consult your legal advisor on matters related to you or your business. 
Zscaler makes no warranties, express, implied, or statutory as to the content of this podcast, and it is provided as is. Content on this podcast may contain forward-looking statements that are current as of the date of the recording and subject to change. These statements are subject to the safe harbor provisions created by the Private Securities Litigation Reform Act of 1995. Full legal disclaimers are available at revolutionaries.zscaler.com. Copyright 2021.